This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. It's the last Tuesday of the month, which means you get to eavesdrop as Bro sits down for a nice chat with someone he reveres in finance. This month, he's joined by Christine Benz, Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. They'll talk about how people should approach the long-term care conundrum, how to close the gender gap in finance, and much, much more, all on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. It's the last episode of the month, which means we get the chance to interview a bright, shining light in the world of financial planning. And this month, it is a real privilege to spend some time chatting with one of my favorite writers at one of my favorite websites, Christine Benz, the Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar. Christine has worked at Morningstar for almost 30 years. She's on Morningstar's 401k committee, co-hosts the Longview podcast, and in 2020 and in 2021 made Barron's list of the 100 most influential women in U.S. finance. Christine, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Robert, it's so great to see you. Thank you for having me on. So let's start with your story. Uh, how did a political science Russian language major end up as Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, or finance as you pronounce it? It was a roundabout path. I studied Russian language for like 10 years, so four years in college as well as six years prior to that. Had always had an interest in politics and government and international relations. So I emerged from college thinking that I would do something putting those two things together. And at that point, when I emerged from college, the job offerings that would leverage my Russian language experience were seemed kind of dull to me. So um, I, I interviewed with the NSA, I remember, and oh, really? that position, as far as I could tell, entailed just kind of listening in on phone conversations of um, Russians who might be living <laughs> in the U.S. It just didn't seem like super interesting work to me. And I wanted to come back to Chicago. Uh, I had been an intern in D.C. and really love D.C., but I did want to live in Chicago with, with my family. And so moved back to Chicago with sort of a vague notion of working in publishing and had a couple of jobs in, in publishing. And my dad was uh, an early adopter of Morningstar, and he really liked what Morningstar was doing. He knew a little bit about the company. He was a mutual fund investor as well as a stock investor. And I remember I saw a help wanted ad in the newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, for a copy editor at Morningstar. And my dad urged me to go apply. I remember that he and my husband gave me a little bit of coaching in advance because my financial knowledge at that point was minuscule. I remember even the night before at dinner, my husband saying, saying so you know what a mutual fund is, right? And I was like, well, <laughs> kind of. Um, so I came in with very little knowledge of financial matters. But thankfully, Morningstar was very willing to train liberal arts folks in investing. And it really didn't matter what position you occupied at Morningstar. You still got that training. So, and, and you got an assigned reading list, which included a random walk down Wall Street and included Jack Bogle's books. So I was really lucky that I was joining a company that was appreciative of liberal arts majors and what we could bring to the table in terms of organized thinking and uh, writing abilities and so forth, but was also willing to train us up as analysts. And so I started as a copy editor, editing the analyst reports, and along the way, within really months of doing that job, I began to 
find it interesting, and also began to think that it was a job that I could do. So I applied to be a fund analyst and eventually, after doing that job for a few years, eventually headed up our U.S. equity research team, so our our team of fund researchers covering U.S. stock-focused funds, and then eventually heading, heading up our U.S. Uh, equity research group or our, our fund research group. You know, Morningstar itself is kind of a great story, right? It started in 1984 by uh, Joe Mansueto, who at the time was like a 27-year-old working out of his apartment in Chicago. Right. Um, the name of the company comes from the last line in Henry David Thoreau's book, Walden, which I love as an English major. Yeah. The company is now worth $12 billion and has more than 8,000 employees in 29 countries. You joined in 1993 when the company was less than a decade old and the style box that the company is now famous for was only a year old. So it must have been really exciting to be part of the company's growth over the decades. Do you have any career development tips that you'd like to share with people looking to build a similarly successful career? It could be in finance or publishing or elsewhere. Yeah, I think the, the starting point you referenced Joe Mansueto's founding of Morningstar, and I think a key thing is finding yourself in a place where you align culturally with the company, and I think that comes um, down to the company's roots. That Joe Mansueto has said that he didn't call Morningstar Mansueto Inc. on purpose. That he didn't want it to be about him. He wanted it to be about something bigger than him. And um, so I think that resonated with me. And also the idea of working in a position at a company that was trying to be helpful appealed to me in a very basic way that I think even though I didn't have a clear sense of what I wanted to do with my career, I always had the sense that I wanted to do something somewhat altruistic. And so I think making sure that the decisions you make align with your values as a human being is is absolutely crucial. Um, So that I, I would say has been sort of a touchstone for me throughout my career, just sort of thinking about what my values are, thinking about how they might be evolving. So, you know, and it, as I began to evolve away from focusing so much on investment research and focusing more on financial planning instead, having a company that was going to be supportive of that growth was really important. Um, and then I would say another thing I I think about is developing your own style with respect to kind of networking your career is really important. Like I do not think of myself as a good networker in a traditional sense, but I think kind of finding your own way to network can be really beneficial. So an example I would give is that I often work on things where I get to work with really high profile people, whether it's Bill Bernstein or even Jack Bogle while while he was still alive, where I would get to work with them on something. And I think they would gain an appreciation for how I thought about things, how I researched things. So I think you can kind of insinuate yourself into um, being respected by just sort of doing what you do rather than networking in a really traditional sense, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. I certainly, when I, when I joined The Fool, I knew I wanted to join The Fool because of the things you said. I like the culture. I like the founders. 
you know, here at the Motley Fool, no one has their own closed off offices, even the founders and the CEOs. And I was yeah. just like, I got to get in there any way I can. <laughs> and once I'm in, I'll work my way to the job I want. Yeah, no, exactly. And Morning Starts the same way, where Joe Mansueto and Kunal Kapoor, his successor, I remember Joe had like a very nice oriental rug in his cubicle. Uh, but he had the same size cubicle as all of the rest of us. He he, he did have a corner cubicle, um, but I really appreciate, appreciated that as well. Um, that's sort of those cultural uh, markers that you can pick up on. So let's talk a little bit about some of the topics that you cover in your work. And when someone visits your author page on Morningstar, they'll see right below your bio that the featured link is to your model portfolios for retirees and savers. Tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, they're a little different from other model portfolios that people might be familiar with in that they're really there for educational or illustration purposes. And I started experimenting with model portfolios mainly because I've become a proponent of what's called the bucket approach to retirement decumulation. And I was influenced by Harold Ovensky, who is a leading light in financial planning to, to work on these bucket portfolios. And basically, they're portfolios that are organized by anticipated spending horizons. So you create your asset allocation based on your proximity to needing to spend your money over a given time period. So I decided to create the model portfolios just to illustrate how this would work in practice, because I think asset allocation can be horribly sort of black boxy, where it can be really difficult to know what is an appropriate asset allocation given a time a given time horizon. So that was really the impetus to show people how this might work in an actual portfolio populated with actual holdings that our analyst team likes and recommends. So that was the goal. And um, I've since created companion portfolios to the bucket portfolios that are more sort of accumulator portfolios geared toward people who are saving for retirement, as well as some portfolios for people with very short-term goals, uh, like within the next five to 10 years as opposed to retirement, and then have created all different iterations of those model portfolios, including tax-efficient portfolios and portfolios that are geared towards specific fund families. So it's just a way to illustrate how some of these things that I talk about in my work could be realized in actual portfolios. So if I could sum up the buckets, it's generally the first bucket, Super safe money. Any money right. you need in the next couple of years, that's cash. Years two to ten, yeah. pretty bond heavy, including maybe maybe floating rate, maybe tips, treasury inflation protected, protected securities, right. maybe some large cap stocks, but mostly safer stuff. And then any money you need beyond that ten years, pretty stock heavy because historically you're going to make money in the stock market over roughly ninety percent of ten year holding periods. Is that about? So I got it mostly there. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And the basic idea behind that sort of 10-year bulwark at the front end where you've got the cash piece and then you've got that bond-heavy bucket too is that if Armageddon occurs in the equity market, you would not have to touch your stock holdings during that period, that you would have enough to sort of spend through in, in such an environment. And we have had periods like that, the lost decade for equity 
studies from 2000 through 2010, I think is a perfect example of why I think that 10-year time horizon may make sense. So in other market environments, you wouldn't necessarily spend through buckets one and two. You wouldn't spend through your cash and bonds. We've had such a great equity market that your equity appreciation has probably supplied everything you needed to to live on and then some. So in better market environments, you can easily just prune your appreciated equity holdings and use that to supply your near-term living expenses. But the idea of that basic bucket setup and that eight years, 10 years, however you want to size that bucket one and two component is there to protect you in case we have some sort of a sustained downturn. You mentioned Harold Levinsky, very respected financial planner. Uh, he wrote a post uh, in uh, past last October on his website talking about basically how he does not expect great things from the U.S. stock market over the coming years. Um, and another excellent resource that you provide is your annual survey of these types of forecasts from different firms, including Morningstar, um, right. for what people could expect from stocks and bonds. You know, the industry often calls them capital market assumptions. Uh, so what are various firms expecting these days and how should investors factor these predictions into their plans? They are not expecting much, at least from a plain vanilla 60% equity, 40% bond portfolio composed of U.S. stocks and bonds. The return expectations really across the board were in sort of the, I would say, mid to low single digits for U.S. equities and even lower for fixed income because we know that starting yields are a really good predictor of what you're apt to return apt to earn in terms of your total return from bonds over the next decade. And we all know where fixed income yields are today, even though they've come up a little bit, they're still very, very low. So the capital markets forecast for that plain vanilla 60-40 portfolio are really quite muted. They look a little better once you stretch the time horizon. So our Morningstar Investment Management team will look at longer time horizons. And there we return to sort of more normal levels if you push it a little further out, out into the future where you can use long-term historical returns for U.S. equities, which are certainly brighter than mid to low single digits. What I saw, though, in the latest run of capital markets assumptions, and I've looked at this within the past few months, is that to affirm, they are expecting better returns from non-U.S. equities. And I know that a lot of people, myself included, have been beating this drum for a while, and it really hasn't happened, including in 2021, where we have seen better returns from non-U.S. equities. But it does appear that there's a convergence on that front, that, that most firms, due to lower starting valuations overseas, are expecting better returns from international equities. Yeah, and I've been pointing that out too for I mean a good five years or so. One of these days, Christine, we're <laughs> right. going to be right. We're going to be dead right. <laughs> um, so obviously, when you think about your portfolio, how much to put in cash, bonds, and stocks, you're really thinking about risk and return. Um, mm-hmm. But you recently wrote that there's actually more to investing than just risk and return. Um, so, what are some of the main lessons you wanted to pass along in that article? Yeah, I had been just sort of toying with this idea or thinking about it, about how there are all these non-tangible, intangibles that we don't think about or we don't certainly 
certainly don't talk about with respect to how we create our financial plans. So peace of mind is a big one that I come back to again and again, where I realize that a lot of smart decisions that I've made over my financial life have been in the name of peace of mind. So a big one that I would uh, point to is my husband and I, a few years ago, were looking at our mortgage and we're like, well, why do we really have a mortgage? We have cash on our balance sheet. And I'm kind of thinking, well, we could probably invest that money and earn a higher return in the market. But gosh, wouldn't it feel good to have a paid off home? And so we did that and have never looked back. And I think that people, if they are thoughtful about their financial lives, they'll probably find that there are other decisions that they might make that they made first and foremost in the name of peace of mind, didn't necessarily deliver the best quantifiable ROI, but nonetheless was a really smart decision. So peace of mind, I think, is one of those important important factors that should affect how you approach your financial plan and your investment plan. I also really love the concept of enough and figuring out if you have enough and how that might affect how you invest. So Bill Bernstein, who I know that you've had on the show before, has said, and he, he would probably say this quote is an original to him, but he said, if you've won the game, quit playing. That if you are in the place you need to be, in terms of your financial life, you should really curtail risk in that plan. There's no need to gun for a higher return. But I think too many of us, I would say that I'm sometimes guilty of this as well, just are sort of geared toward like, well, no, there's a better return to be had somewhere. So I'm going to continue to position my portfolio aggressively and never pull back even when I have enough. Um, and another topic I covered in that piece was just the time on earth allocation that I don't think we talk enough about how we spend our time and whether the financial decisions we make align with giving us more time to do things that constitute quality of life for us. And so I think um, if you really are mindful of the importance of your time on earth al allocation, to me, that points for really trying to simplify your financial plan or maybe delegate some of your financial planning decisions, some of your investment decisions to someone else. So those are just some, some things that I was thinking about with respect to things that are not quantifiable. Um, you can't create an alpha around time on earth allocation. It's really very personal and up to each of us to sort of make our own decisions, but they should be part of the decision-making process. We've talked about risk a little bit in the conversation and mostly pertaining to the portfolio, uh, but there are other risks. And one of those is the potential need for long-term care. And there's really two aspects to it. One is whether we personally will need long-term care. And this stat suggests that most people over the age of 65 will need some care. It doesn't necessarily mean you'll have to pay for it, but you'll need some help. But then there's a possibility that we'll be the ones providing some level of care for generally relatives. And you've had personal experience with both of these aspects. You've written that your parents needed care before they passed away, and that you have an older sister with intellectual disabilities and that she lives with you and your husband for part of the year. You've also written that you and your husband hired a fee-only financial planner to help you decide whether you should purchase long-term care insurance for your own coverage. So given all your experience and research, how do you think people should approach the long-term care conundrum? Well, starting with the financial piece, I would say it's devilishly complicated, and that was the... the 
choice that my husband and I were attempting to kind of arrive at a decision on. Um, so you, really, there are a few key options. One is to self-fund, which is probably where we'll land. And when we met with the planner, her advice was, I, I think you should probably just calm down about this, even though this is your personal experience, I think you're okay in terms of self-funding. But you can also buy pure long-term care insurance. The problem with it is that it has become more and more expensive. We've seen consumers who thought they were doing all the right things purchase long-term care insurance and then be confronted with these egregious premium hikes, which have been the result of insurers' claims experiences. If people have long-term care insurance, they tend to use it. If they purchase it, they the insurance company tends not to be able to shake them off with these premium increases. They hang on and say, well, I've been paying into the policy. Why would I quit it now? So we've seen premiums go up on pure long-term care. I still think that that's probably the right answer for a certain set of consumers, especially for those who have kind of tighter financial plans where it looks like uh, they will need everything in their portfolio to live on during their retirement years when they're healthy. So I think that pure long-term care can make sense in some situations. Increasingly, there are these hybrid life slash long-term care policies, which is really a life insurance policy with a long-term care insurance rider. That was something my husband and I delved into when we were looking at long-term care decision-making. We had a whole life policy and you can do these, not to get too in the weeds in, in terms of all of this insurance aspect, but you can do these conversions called a 1035 exchange of an existing life insurance policy into one of these hybrid policies. That was an, a spot where we did get some help from a broker who talked us through the available options if we wanted to do that. Um, I think that that can be kind of an elegant option in that it helps you switch off one risk, uh, uh, the risk of dying while you have dependents for the risk, the new risk, which is the risk of having long-term care. So I wouldn't rule it out, but I would say that it's an exceptionally complicated space. And then finally, the last option for covering long-term care is uh, to require, to rely on government resources. And in fact, the U.S. government and Medicaid is the largest payer of long-term care expenses in the U.S. But there are significant strictures around who can use those resources. You need to essentially deplete a big share of your investment resources. And this is a big issue, especially if you're part of a married couple, where you would essentially have to not impoverish, but really drain the resources in order to have the person who needed long-term care be eligible for, for Medicaid-provided care. So not a simple answer financially, but I would definitely think through the key sort of sorts of options on that front. And then, you know, as you alluded to, there's a whole softer set of considerations around long-term care, where you want to receive long-term care. So the experience that I had with my parents was that they wanted to receive care in their home. And, and I very much respected them and adored my mom and dad and wanted to help them make it happen and have five sisters. So we were all very hands-on. But what I would say is for people who 
have that as their plan, just make sure that you have some really committed adult children who can help you see that vision to fruition because it's not as simple as saying, I plan to just, you know, install grab bars in my shower or whatever it might be. There's all kinds of other stuff that goes along with um, making care in a home work. And then with my sister, that's sort of a separate consideration. She has an intellectual disability, has had since birth, and um, it was our family's plan to keep her with us. And we have a large family, and she spends a portion of each of her years with us. She has a, a bedroom in each of um, the homes of my siblings and myself and my husband. And um, she is sort of the honored guest while she's there for her two months, two and a half months each year. And uh, it works really well for us. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for everyone else because um, my sister happens to be quite high functioning and it makes it she makes it really easy for all of us, but um, that's been sort of a more uh, elegant, I would say, solution to a to a long term care. Um, what might be, you know, sort of a conundrum for other people has been a pretty nice solution for my family. Just to highlight a few things there, make sure everyone got them. First of all, you're one of six girls in the family, yes. which is quite amazing. Um, and the other thing that uh, you know, even though you're a personal finance expert. You hired a fee-only planner to help make a decision. And I've often said that I think even the most dedicated do-it-yourselfers should occasionally get that objective expert opinion just to make sure they have all, all their bases covered. I've done it in the past, and I expect to do it in the future, even though it's really not very cheap. No, that's right. We shopped around and I found a planning firm here in Chicago. I had actually had some contact with them um, through work-related things and uh, think a lot of their abilities. They're quite sophisticated. I think that sometimes people think that this sort of hourly model of paying for advice is for less sophisticated investors as well as less sophisticated planners. And I would say that this particular planning firm and several others that I know of really puts the lie to that notion in that they are incredibly sophisticated, especially with respect to their tax planning expertise. And also their clients are pretty sophisticated in that one of the planners shared with me that their typical client portfolio is $10 million. And I think those clients have done the math and have said, if I'm going to pay for advice, it's probably better for me to do it on a surgical basis rather than handing over a uh, you know, a percentage point of my return per year, which is not to say that isn't a good model for some people, but I think that um, certainly for people with very large portfolios, that won't be the most cost-effective way to pay for advice. So absolutely get advice from a financial planner and do so either on a holistic basis or on a surgical basis. I think that it can be really economically quite efficient. Uh, the planner that we work with does have a high hourly fee, but if we you know, only need their services once every couple of years and we only need 10 or 20 hours of their work, it'll be more cost-effective for us than for paying, than paying an ongoing fee year in and year out. Since we're talking about the financial profession, the financial world in general seems very male-dominated. And whether you're talking about financial services industry, the financial media, even the consumers of financial media, the Motley Fool audience skews very male. 
And I assume that's true of the Morningstar audience. You could tell me if that's accurate or not, but it, but based on the five or so conferences, Morningstar conferences I've been to, it seems that to be to be the case. So assuming you agree with all that, why do you think that is and what can be done to close the gender gap? Yeah, you have bro in your name. So let's start there. Um, <laughs> it's very bro-y, I would say overall. I do see signs of change. And I think that's happening for a couple of reasons. One is that I feel like the dynamic in the financial industry is moving toward an appreciation of financial planning and moving toward an appreciation of goals versus investing strictly and beating the benchmark. And so I feel like the whole conversation is moving more toward goals. And I think that's where women really shine. And I think that that idea of reaching goals, achieving tasks resonates with women. So I think that we'll begin to see more diversity as the industry evolves to show a greater appreciation for helping people achieve their goals as opposed to beating benchmarks. And of course, these are huge generalizations. I'm sure there are plenty of women who are very geared toward beating benchmarks and plenty of guys who are, I know plenty of guys who are very goals focused. But um, I think as the conversation, as the industry shifts more in that direction, I think we we'll see more women enter the field. I think culture is really important. Um, I come back to Morningstar's culture. I think Morningstar has always been a tremendous culture for women. And we've had several women leaders over the years, but even the male leaders have been incredibly receptive to having women be in leadership positions. I think of kind of my main sort of mentor at Morningstar, Don Phillips, who was one of Morningstar's original founding members um, was always just so supportive of my career and so supportive of everything that I worked on. And I think that that's cultural. And and so I would like to see more companies um, get better at including women in leadership positions. It's it's a heavy lift, but I think think we're going to get there. I'm I'm hopeful. I'm I'm thinking and hoping also that it's generational. When I think of my mom's generation, it certainly was much more the case where you left money to to your husband and you took care of the kids. I think the, the studies that look at the financial literacy gap between men and women find that younger women are doing much better because it's just changed in, a change in society in terms of giving women more opportunities, equal treatment in various ways, things like that. I think that's absolutely true. And I've been interested in some of the data on how women invest relative to men. When you look at the data, um, you do see that there's a gap that women tend to be more conservative and that gets repeated again and again and again. But then when you drill into that, that's really an income gap that women do tend to earn less than men over their lifetime. So perhaps quite rationally, they take less risk in their investment portfolios because they don't think they have the funds to risk. Uh, It's interesting when you look at some of the more finely tuned data that look at 
investment choices when you control for income, you see that men and women invest almost in the same way. So I think solving that income gap, that is still something I'm very interested in. And I think part of that comes back to, do we create... Do we create an environment where women can stay engaged with work even while they want to be very involved with raising their kids at home? And and do we create an environment where men can do that as well? I think that that is key to solving this income gap, which has been, in my view, very important in terms of causing women to invest more conservatively. At this point in your career, you've written hundreds, if not thousands of articles. I don't know if you've ever tried to count them all. No. but um, <laughs> <I'm> scared to. <laughs> are there a few that you consider sort of your all-time favorites? Maybe because you thought they were particularly well-written, you saw it published, and like, dang, that was a good article. <laughs> or you thought that they covered a really important lesson, or maybe you hit upon a new insight? Yeah. Um, one that comes to mind, I referenced my sister and I wrote a column out of pure rage, not toward her, but toward a, a situation that happened um, when she she was staying with us and we had a door-to-door financial advisor come. I think it was one day when I wasn't home and came and um, spoke to my sister and later dropped off some materials at the house about retirement planning. And it was pretty clear to me that she would have understood the situation. She would have understood that my my sister would have been someone who couldn't make her own financial decisions. But nonetheless, she seemed determined to try to make some sort of a sale. And I guess I was just so disgusted by the practice of um, what seemed to me um, kind of an exploitive sort of um, uh, a situation. I, I also think it's just plain risky for financial people to be going day, door to door, um, no matter what the community, how safe the community might be perceived. Um, so I just, I, I, I just was so frustrated with the culture, the salesy culture that seems to persist at some financial advisory firms. So I wrote a piece about that called Not Okay that um, discussed my thoughts and my concerns about that, that salesy culture. And you, and you eventually tracked that person down and confronted the financial planner, right? I did. I, I was just so angry, and um, I, I talked to her, and I, I had really given her the benefit of the doubt, and talked to family members about, like, is it possible she didn't know? Is it possible she didn't realize? Everyone assured me that it, she had to have known, and I would say that we had a, cor- a fairly cordial conversation, um, and. I just kind of left it there. I did have a journalist inquire about, can you give me her name? Can you give me her number? I want to follow up on this. And I didn't want to, you know, sort of completely wreck her career, but I did want her to know that that I felt that her behavior had been very concerning. Any other articles stand out as among your all-time faves? Well, I liked uh, a piece I wrote about um, my 25 lessons from my 25th anniversary. So I would have had my 25th anniversary at Morningstar in, um, I guess, 2018. And I wrote a piece just sort of reflecting on a lot of things that I come back to again and again in my column. So on why less is more in your financial plan, um, 
on the importance of financial planning and not sweating the small stuff, just kind of some big picture takeaways. That was a fun one that that seemed to resonate with people. I'll tell you what one of my favorite Christine Benz articles was, uh, and that is Confessions of a Former Fire Skeptic, Fire Meeting Financial Dependents Retire Early. And I like that article for many reasons, uh, but one is that it encapsulated pretty much my own thought evolution on the fire movement. Uh, so what were you skeptical about and then what changed your mind? Yeah, two main things I was skeptical about. One was this sort of, I had the perception that everyone in the fire movement was sort of viewing work as this slog that they needed to get through. Like that work is just this horrible thing that you have to put up with until you can stop. And having had such a happy and successful career, I guess that's just not my vantage point at all. I feel like work can be a great source of joy for all of us. I think about like when my parents were dying, what a great uh, source of refuge from some other sad parts of my life that work was and friends at work were during that time. Um, so so there was that. Um, and I would say that that hangs out there a little bit that I think there are some people in the fire community who still kind of treat work that way. And my point on that is maybe look for another job then if 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 work is that bad for you. And then the other thing is when I think about like my 20s and 30s and 40s, I think that those can be really great years for experience. And some of those experiences require spending money. So I think about all the great travel that my husband and I did in those years, which we're still doing, but you know, you, you never know what the future holds. And I'm so glad that we did them while we were young. Um, and, you know, some of those things do require spending money. So I think about this sort of intense frugality that pervades the fire community or some quarters of the fire community. And that I reject because I do think that you need to find balance and that might involve spending more money than perhaps you want to. So those were the initial reservations that I had. I would say speaking with Chris Mamula, who has a blog, I think it's called, can I, can I retire yet? I believe, um, really changed my mind. He was the first person we had on our podcast who was part of the fire community. And he really evinced balance in in the conversation. So he talked about how he and his wife love travel too, and they had visited every continent. And I'm thinking to myself, gosh, I haven't visited every continent. That's pretty good. And he also talked about how important it had been for him and his wife to set their priorities. So they live in Utah and they love outdoor adventure. And he made the point that we'll always have the best outdoor gear, whatever it is to keep us warm or, you know, keep us comfortable as we engage in our outdoor pursuits. We're going to spend money on that. We are not going to cheap out. And so that conversation was really eye-opening to me in terms of understanding how someone who had been successful in a fire pursuit had pursued it and also how he hadn't completely abandoned balance in the process. And also listening to him, Chris continues to work. He works on his blog. He has written a book. And so, you know, understanding that not working for pay does not mean not working. 
And so those are a couple of things that uh, brought me around to thinking that, hey, this can really be a neat idea. And I actually would love it if more young people, rather than sort of um, day trading stocks or crypto or whatever they're doing, I would like to see them get more engaged with this sort of financial freedom idea, which comes out loud and clear if you fire if you follow some of these fire blogs. Yeah, I think the, the main benefit uh, of the whole movement is just being very thoughtful about your spending, right? Yeah. Don't, we all spend money on things that one month, one year later, we're like, you just don't value it, whether it's right. going out to eat too much, stuff that's just clogging up your closets or your garage. Just being very mindful of that, um, I think is very valuable. Another person you had on your podcast was Tanya Hester, another significant fact figure in the fire movement. And she's written that, to a certain degree, we all should be practicing fire because we don't really know how long we'll be able to work. Something like a quarter or a third of people who retire, retire sooner than they expected, sometimes due to health issues or job loss, something your colleague, David Blanchett, I think calls retirement date risk. Right. Right. No, I think that's such an important point. It's really worth thinking through that we don't have as much control over this as we might think think we do. When we look at the research on when people thought they would retire in the pre-retirement years relative to when they actually thought they would, when they actually did retire, what we see is that there's a disconnect. So you've got a lot of people in the pre-retirement years saying, oh yeah, I'm going to work past 65. I might even work past 70. In reality, it's a fairly small subset of the po- of the population that is either able to do that or wants to do that. So I think keeping in mind that you may not fully have control over your retirement date is an important aspect of, of planning and retirement planning. So <clears throat> since we're talking about retirement, it brings us to our final question, which is we generally ask a retirement expert about their own plans. So what does retirement look like for Christine Benz? And was it influenced by a sabbatical you took in 2017, which you call your faux retirement or your faux retirement, I should say? Yeah. Morningstar does offer a sabbatical every four years, um, which is a, I think it's a six, six week break. It's been a while since I've had one. Um, six week break from work. And I did start thinking about that on my last sabbatical, um, where I was just sort of thinking about like, huh, my husband and I took a long trip first of all, but then I came home and was just sort of by myself thinking about, is this what retirement might be like? And I did have a long list of projects that I wanted to work on, which I kind of blew through some of them related to dealing with the last bits of my parents' estate. And uh, I realized how much I missed my work colleagues and how I would need to replace that in some fashion in retirement. Um, I thought about how balance is so important in retirement as well, how my best days in this faux-tirement were days where I got some stuff done and also did something really fun that I think full-time fun is less fun when you're not balancing it alongside achieving some stuff. So those were a few conclusions. On an ongoing basis, someone who's really influenced my thinking thinking was Carl Richards, who is the sketch guy. 
He has written books. Um, he's just sort of an excellent thinker on financial planning matters. And when I asked him about his retirement, he said, well, I don't plan to ever retire, but what I'm doing is I'm keeping a stop doing list. And so as I go about my work, I'm putting on that list stuff that I really don't enjoy. And inevitably, as we move in our careers, we get good at some things that we don't enjoy and they keep asking you to do these things. And some of these things might be sort of high profile and might be actually part of your identity. But if you're honest, you might reflect and say, I don't love doing that thing. That thing stresses me out. It doesn't make me happy. Even the day before I start thinking about having to do it and I don't love it. So I'm going to take Carl's lead on that. And I've been trying to do this where I'm keeping like a stop doing pile. And eventually my hope is that I'll just get my job down to a shorter list of stuff that I really enjoy doing. So I think that that's something to kind of think about as, as people move forward toward retirement. We do have a lot of research that shows continuing to work in some fashion is really important for us in terms of having that sense of purpose, as well as having those social interactions. So my plan is to continue working when I think about like, if I were to fully retire, I'd probably want to do some volunteer activity that might look a lot like my day job that I get paid for right now. So I'm like, why would I do that? So for now, I'm um, thinking about just continuing to work, but but working more on things I enjoy and feeling lucky that I have the, the privilege to be able to pick and choose a little bit. Well, Christine, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Robert. You're a great interviewer. I love talking to you. Well, that's the show. It's edited spookily by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.